With abortion the number one topic in the news and digital square right now, the lazy abortion-obsessed kooks are reading their pro-abortion scripts word for word. These arguments come up every election cycle, every time there's a significant piece of news in the abortion wars, but these arguments have never been persuasive. However, I think they deserve a brutal takedown nonetheless. Let's abort these non-viable pro-choice arguments. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am on the road right now, and we are getting my mobile podcast equipment and studio set up. So apologies for the somewhat different show today. Um, We are hoping it sounds just as good for you, and we appreciate you tuning in. These are significant times in our country right now. If you listen to the show, you understand that we are really living in a turning point that will be described in history books for decades. If and when Roe v. Wade gets overturned, this will be enshrined in the national consciousness forever. And the political winds are aligning in very interesting ways. Coalitions are being formed, and people are starting to stand for life and liberty, recognizing how important that simple right is, the right to life. And if we don't get that right right, we're not going to get any other rights right. In fact, most of the consequences we're facing in tyranny and the abuse and deterioration of liberty in this country go right back to our failure to protect the unborn child. So abortion kind of functions as this litmus test for the republic and our national consciousness. But I want to dive into some of these arguments. I've been reading pieces from the New York Times. I know it's horrible. I do it for you to cover what the secular progressive elites are talking about and and arguing, okay? And And you see these arguments on CNN. You see these arguments in the New York Times. You see these on Facebook, on Twitter, on TikTok, right? <laughs> Where apparently they believe they're putting their best arguments forward. There are more technical, difficult arguments for some pro-lifers to deal with from the pro-abortion side. We've talked about most of those on this show. We'll do that again in the future and we'll debunk those. However, it's interesting to see what kind of arguments the secular progressive movement, the Democrat Party, the abortion industry, but I repeat myself, focus on which ones they platform, which ones they repeat, which ones they celebrate, because they think that they're good. They think that those are their best arguments, and I've always found them to be incredibly lacking in insight. But I, th- I think we know the answer why. It's because the pro-abortion ideology is not built on thoughtfulness. It's built on selfishness, the elevation of self, satisfaction, right? my desires, my pursuit of happiness. And if the rights of another human being get in the way, namely the life of a child, oh well, so be it. I must have orgasms without responsibility. And this, and so then you hear consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy, and then all these pro-abortion arguments start coming out, right? If, if it's her body uh, and you should be allowed to tell her what to do with her body, then I guess men should have mandatory vasectomies. And so all these arguments are coming out. We're going to cover some of these and just give you maybe some 
evergreen talking points to stand firm on your correct convictions in a increasingly out of control culture of death. Now, listen, if you're new to the show and you've just tuned in recently and you haven't given us a rating and review, will you please do that? It really helps us reach more people. The show has grown a lot in the last year, particularly in the last couple months. And people have gotten involved with sidewalk counseling and saved babies because they listen to this show. They've gotten pro-life ministry started at their church because they listen to this show. And you never know what your little rating and review that causes more people to see the podcast might actually accomplish. So with that in mind, thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for sharing it with others. So I want to dive into this first argument that I saw the other day. I see this all the time, but I just saw it recently. And it's it's this idea that men should have mandatory vasectomies. <laughs> so it's it, the argument goes something like this. If women can be forced to be pregnant, and that's how they're describing pro-life laws, right? You're forcing women to be pregnant. Then men should be forced to get vasectomies. And then they know that the pro-lifer will say, no, that's not right. And then they'll go, why? Why? Because it's his body. Because he has bodily autonomy. Oh, oh, just like the woman whose bodily autonomy you don't respect. And, and that is like, that is it. That, that's the depth of their argument. And there was a piece in a Business Insider just the other day on May 21st. And here's what it said. It said, an Oklahoma state representative proposed an idea for legislation that would make vasectomies mandatory for young men in the state. And of course, he's trying to troll the pro-life side. But again, it just, it just shows how little these people have thought through their ideas. It says, speaking before a floor of legislators, State Representative Mickey Dolan said on Thursday that he is thinking about introducing the legislation next year. I would invite you to co-author a bill that I'm considering next year that would mandate that each male, when they reach puberty, get a mandatory vasectomy that's only reversible when they reach the point of financial and emotional stability, he told GOP lawmakers. Now, of course, who, who decides the emotional uh, and financial age of stability? Uh, that's you know obviously a question he's uninterested in answering. He says, if you think that's crazy, then I think that maybe you understand how 50% of Oklahomans feel as well. Now, whether 50% of Oklahomans are in fact pro-abortion and support the Democrat Party's position on abortion is a question for another time. But this is the argument, right? It's that it's that opposition to um, ab- abortion is um, comparable to forcing men to get vasectomies (laughs) because the man would have his bodily autonomy compromised by being forced to do something with his body he doesn't want to. And that's just like forcing women to do something with their body that they don't want to. Of course, the equation and piece they leave out is that it's not her body, her choice, right? There's a different human being involved. And so if human beings do have bodily autonomy in virtue of being a human being, that they they, they have human rights because they're a human being, namely the right to control their own body, then guess what? The unborn baby would have bodily autonomy as well, (laughs) right? Which is why if a baby is born prematurely, um, at, a, at a stage of development that they could have been aborted legally, we recognize that that child has bodily autonomy, right? You're not allowed to kill infants after they're born. Now, the Democrat Party's been on board with that for a while, partial birth abortions, and then allowing abortion survivors who survive botched abortions to die on the table, or in California where they were trying to legalize infanticide so that you couldn't prosecute mothers or abortionists who failed to take care of babies or actively kill babies up to 28 days after birth. Anyways, you've heard me talk about that. The Democrat Party is actually friendly with infanticide, but there are laws against this, right? Why? Because we recognize that after birth, the baby has bodily autonomy. Well, there's nothing magical about the process of childbirth that gives the child or baby bodily autonomy. 
It's not as if a six-inch journey through the birth canal transforms the entity from a non-person blob of tissue to a baby with bodily autonomy and individual rights. So this argument, like most pro-choice arguments, actually begs the question, right, which is when you assume the very thing you have to prove for your argument to work in the first place. You beg the question when you assume your conclusion, but you have to argue for your conclusion. And the assumption is that there's only one body involved, that of the mother's. Hence the comparison between a man's body, which is only his body, and a vasectomy procedure that he shouldn't be forced to do in comparison to the woman's body and a separate baby inside the mother's body, right? And so they're assuming that the only body involved is the mother's, which is the very thing they have to prove for their argument to work in the first place. And of course, we should also add that the uterus, okay, is the only organ in a woman's body that is not created for her. The organ is not created to preserve or sustain the woman's body. It's the only organ specifically designed for a different human being, a different body in the first place, which once again makes it a completely different issue than a man being forced to get a vasectomy. So that's the first argument we're seeing a, a lot right now as abortion is very hot in the news because people are losing their minds that Roe v. Wade might not get overturned and they might not be able to kill as many babies. The second argument you're seeing a lot right now has to do with this idea of freezing zygotes. I saw this one making the rounds on Twitter or Instagram. And the idea is this. The idea is that if you can freeze a zygote without killing it or her, but not a human, that proves zygotes are not humans. That's kind of how the argument goes. They, they, right? They're saying, uh, oh, do you know of any human beings that can be frozen for days, weeks, or years and then just be thawed and survive? Oh, you don't because human beings can't do that. Okay, so then the zygote's not a human being. That, that's sort of the argument. And there was one specific graphic or meme going around with a picture of a baby. And here's what the graphic said. It said, this is baby Molly. She was born from an embryo that had been frozen for 27 years. If we put baby Molly in a freezer for 27 years, baby Molly would die. Why can you freeze an embryo but not a baby? Why can you freeze an embryo but not a baby? And then it says, because an embryo isn't a living human. Wow. Whoa, that was a big jump right there. It, they don't argue for it. They, they just say that simply because an embryo can be frozen and survive, potentially, and be thawed and survived but a baby or born person can't, that proves the embryo isn't a living human. No, it doesn't at all. <laughs> we already know the embryo is a living human being. Okay, we already know that embryo, fetus, these are different terms that just describe the same human being at different stages in their physical development. The left has begun to use terms like embryo and fetus as dehumanizing terms or in a dehumanizing way. Unfortunately, pro-lifers have kind of let the left insert their meaning into those words because objectively they're not dehumanizing, right? Just like infant and toddler are not dehumanizing terms. However, we don't have nearly as many people in the country that want to kill infants or toddlers as we do that want to kill fetuses or embryos. The term just describes the same human at specific stages in their development. But they're just assuming that because the you can't freeze an adult or a baby, but you can freeze an embryo and they can survive, that proves the embryo is a living human being. Of course, this doesn't prove this at all. Um, zygotes are developmentally immature, immature enough 
to handle being frozen, thawed, and still surviving. More developed human beings cannot handle that process, okay? Though in each circumstance, they are fully and wholly human. Uh, Dr. Brent Bowles, one of our favorite OBGYNs and a frequent guest of this show, explained it this way. He said, the ability of the embryo to survive freezing and thawing is a function of size, not humanity. The small size of the human embryo allows the cold temperature to penetrate evenly and then for warmth to penetrate evenly. As the size increases, this is no longer possible. And suppose, of course, um, that through the science of cryogenics, we reached a point where we can successfully freeze and thaw larger humans. I mean, this is, this is uh, potentially true, okay? Then that would pre present a similar problem. Would that prove that those people are not fully human because they can survive being frozen, thawed, and still survive? No, of course not, right? So we, this presents the same problem as the moving the goalposts of viability, right? Viability might change given age, circumstances, or geography. A, a baby pregnant in their mother's womb in parts of Africa, okay, may not be viable because they wouldn't have access to the type of medical technology that would enable that child to be viable if they were born at a very early stage of development. But if that mother took a plane ride to New York City, that baby at the same stage of development would then be viable because of the access to medical technology that makes babies viable, viable at earlier and earlier stages. So, so viability is never a good standard for whether you're a person with rights, simply because you may be able to survive on your own without life support or without the support of um, medical technology or doctors. So anyways, it's a very silly argument, but I thought it was worth addressing since you're hearing it a lot right now. It is in virtue of the unborn child's immaturity that allows them to survive the freezing and thawing process. It doesn't mean they're any less human or less valuable, and it certainly doesn't prove that an embryo isn't a living human being. Okay, here's the third argument, and this was from courtesy of the New York Times recently, and it's the argument for abortion from the 13th Amendment. Now, you'll, you'll hear the left sometimes make these arguments using the 13th or 14th Amendment, which again were amendments used to rectify the problem of racism, of slavery in America. So it's really sick and ironic that they look to these decisions that corrected slavery, that corrected racism, and then they use those as the evidence for the support of abortion in America today. So the argument goes something like this. Forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy, and of course they call it a pregnancy, not a baby, not a human. Forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy is, quote, involuntary servitude and violates the 13th Amendment. That's the argument, no joke. Courtesy of Linda Greenhouse in a New York Times opinion editorial on May 24th, Here's what she writes. She says, I'll swing for the fences. The 13th Amendment, adopted after the Civil War, prohibits both slavery and involuntary servitude. What is forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy to term if not involuntary servitude? I claim no credit for this idea. Feminists invoked the 13th Amendment in a brief to the court during Roe v. Wade. And Andrew Koppelman, a law professor at Northwestern University, has been making the 13th Amendment argument as an originalist matter for years, drawing in part on the long history of enslaved women's involuntary childbearing. Irene Cameron's graphic description in New York Magazine of the burdens of pregnancy aimed at the Alito draft opinion's obliviousness to women's interests 
has been making the rounds in feminist circles. While her essay, I Too Have a Human Form, does not make an explicit 13th Amendment argument, it could serve as Exhibit A in such a case. Okay, and so she goes on and says, anyone who offers a serious 13th Amendment argument risks being dismissed as a chaser of fool's gold, as Professor Jamal Green of Columbia Law School put it in a 2012 journal article entitled 13th Amendment Optimism. Optimism. So yes, it's a fantasy, but maybe the moment has come for fantasy, Greenhouse says. The reality of a modern nation without legal abortion having failed to move the current majority. The message of the Alito draft, right, Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court and the leaked uh, opinion on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization that would overturn Roe v. Wade, she says the message of that draft is that the age of constitutional argument is over. There's a case to be made that it died a long time time ago. But in any event, here's my final question to the justices. What other than raw power will take its place? So there's, there's, there are worlds carried in these words. Notice that Linda Greenhouse says that it's actually the conservatives, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court, that is ignoring constitutionality and uh, replacing it for raw power for raw political power, right? So uh, your take on this would probably be, no, actually, the right to life is pretty fundamental to the Constitution and our founding documents. You can't be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, right? <laughs> and that applies to human beings. The unborn is a human being. Uh, and it's the left who actually legislated from the bench, right, by ignoring natural realities and substituting legal fiat, right? It was activist judges who, who just federalized abortion at the national level. But for the left, of course, it's always an inversion of reality, right? It, it, her take on this is that the conservatives think that constitutional argumentation is over, so what will take its place except raw power? Well, what is a greater example of ignoring constitutionality and exerting raw power than abortion, right? And I've told you the Camille Paglia line, the, the very honest pro-choice feminist academic I think at the University of Arts in Philadelphia, who said, hence I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Liberals, for the most part, have shrunk from facing the ethical consequences of their embrace of abortion, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue, right? The extermination of the powerless by the powerful. Honest thinkers, whether they're pro-life or pro-choice, have to admit that abortion is the ultimate example of abusing power. <laughs> and so, anyways, it's it's you just you start to sense kind of where the argument's going um, when their take on the Constitution, their take on the Thirteenth Amendment, their take on power is that it's the conservatives who are abusing power and upending constitutional norms. But the argument is that the Thirteenth Amendment provides us a great case for abortion because the Thirteenth Amendment. Um, prohibits involuntary servitude or slavery. And so she says that being pregnant and not being allowed to choose an abortion, to choose to pay someone to kill your unborn baby, that is involuntary servitude. And you'll hear this called like forced birthers. They'll call pro-lifers forced birthers who are forcing people into the servitude of motherhood, into, the, into giving birth to their babies, right? Of course, you and I would say, well, actually, you, no, no, no. We're not forcing you into that. You chose that when you got in bed, except for the vast minority of about half of a percent of cases where abortion was performed in the case of rape. Otherwise, you 
engaged in a consensual act of sex. Therefore, you consented to the possibility of pregnancy. But her argument, in short, is that motherhood is nothing more than involuntary servitude. But it's not because consent to sex is consent to pregnancy. Therefore, there's nothing involuntary about it. This is just another garbage example of misusing an amendment created to protect black humans from being dehumanized and using it in a way that dehumanizes unborn humans, right? They're using an amendment that was explicitly passed in order to correct the dehumanization and non-personing of black people to do the same thing now to unborn children. A constitutional amendment created to protect the rights of human beings who were declared non-persons is now being used as the justification to trample the rights of a new class of human beings who have been declared non-persons. Uh, the, the irony uh, is nothing short of hilarious, and, and well, it would be hilarious if it weren't for the amount of dead children and babies who have been killed because of this type of thinking and ideology. By the way, as we're talking about the 13th Amendment here and the similarities with slavery, have you ever noticed the, the similarities in the arguments for slavery and the arguments for abortion? It's creepy, and it's dystopic, and it's freaking weird. It's weird how they use the same argument sometimes, sometimes word for word, that racists use to justify slavery to defend abortion today. It is a little bit creepy. It should kind of freak you out, right? If you're a moderate, it should kind of rattle your conscience a little bit to make you sort of second guess your political priorities, make you second guess your support of abortion. I mean, history does tend to repeat itself. And if you hear the same type of arguments being used word for word sometimes, maybe you should check yourself. Maybe you should go, maybe I'm off here. Maybe I'm on the wrong side of history. Maybe I have been blinded by the normalization of this evil to think that it's actually acceptable or permissible, which many people were during slavery in America. For example, here are some ways in which the arguments for slavery mirror the arguments for abortion. There's the argument from ownership, right? This slave slash baby is my property slash body. There's the argument from privacy, right? No one is forcing you to have slaves, right? If you don't like slavery, you don't have to do it, right? No one is forcing you to have abortions. Don't like abortion, don't have one. Um, but don't you intrude in the private medical decisions that a mother or a woman makes. There's the argument from superseding rights, right? My property slash bodily autonomy rights come before the slaves slash fetuses. There's the argument from uh, inevitability, right? That slavery slash abortion has been here for thousands of years. It's not going to go away. So we might as well keep it safe and legal, right? <laughs> the courts have decided, you'll hear people say, they've decided, they've declared this is a settled matter. It's clearly not a settled matter, by the way. It clearly isn't, given how many people are in support of sending abortion law back to the states. There's the argument from pseudoscience, fake science, right? Well, you know, the slave slash fetuses, you know, they're not, they're not real people. They're not like us. They're not fully human. Uh, they're, well, they're, they're physically different than us. Just look at them, right? So mm, we're human and they're not. <laughs> right? Well, that's not science, right? It's just like AOC recently said. She said, uh, you know, Jews, their religion is that they can get abortions and people have different religions. And so they don't have the same understanding about what represents a life as, as fundamentalist Christians. 
And, and so who can really know? Well, clearly someone's wrong. Clearly there is a scientific truth. And if you're calling these unborn babies non-persons or not real people, then that's not science. That's pseudoscience. That's you inserting your philosophical view of personhood into the debate and, and masquerading it as science. There's the argument from socioeconomics, right? Uh, well, if slavery slash abortion ends, most of these slaves slash babies will just end up on the streets without a job, right? So, so we need slavery slash abortion for socioeconomic reasons, right? It won't be good for them. It won't be good for society. There's the argument from faux compassion, right? That slavery slash abortion, it's actually in the best interests of the African-American slash babies, uh, because the world can be a mean place. The, we, the world can be a rough and tumble place. So it's best to protect them by keeping them enslaved slash killing them, <laughs> right? They, they pretend to pitch their support of these injustices under the language of compassion. And nearly every um, argument for the secular progressive um, uh, moral revolution and their priorities are defended with the language of false compassion. And lastly, there's the argument from the assumed hypocrisy of the other side, right? Y you say that you want to end slavery slash abortion, but you don't want to live with freed blacks slash adopt unwanted babies yourself, <laughs> right? You say you want to end slavery slash abortion, but you don't want to live with the responsibilities of freed blacks or adopting the babies yourself. What are you doing, right? You're a, you're a hypocrite because you're not adopting all the babies, therefore you can't be pro-life, right? Or you're not caring for all the freed blacks, therefore you're not really against slavery, right? But but this is of course this is an incredibly stupid argument. You don't have to you don't have to prove your principles through action for the principle to be correct, right? Now, now you could make an argument that this person should do more for this class of people, right? But the principle itself, right, that slavery is wrong or abortion is wrong, that argument is stands, that argument is correct. My pro-life convictions or anti-slavery convictions can be entirely morally correct, even if I'm not adopting personal responsibility for said victim classes. So I just I thought we should go through the the dystopic and creepy similarities between the arguments for slavery and the arguments for abortion. And lastly, this argument from the New York Times about how uh, you know pro-lifers are are forcing women into involuntary servitude. Therefore, the Thirteenth Amendment provides a great argument for abortion. This is extremely dehumanizing to women, who I guess according to the left and this author at the New York Times are apparently so weak that they require the death of their babies, that they created consensually in order to be truly free. It's an incredibly sexist argument to, to, to equate consent, consent to pregnancy when you got in bed to involuntary servitude. And that you, these women apparently, according to Linda Greenhouse, are so inherently weak of soul and body that they can't be forced to deal with the realities of their sexual choices. A human being, a baby that was conceived through sex, and therefore they need and require the right to treat that baby as property, ironically, because they're using the 13th Amendment, in order to be truly free. And you remember there was this clip from pro-aborts walking into Catholic churches from a group called Ruth sent us, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whatever, sent us. And they're saying, they're, they're literally screaming in some of these churches that they're entering into. And they're saying, without this basic right, women can't be free. Abortion on demand and without apology. 
Without this basic right, women can't be free. That's an incredibly telling statement. You should think about that a little bit. That's incredibly telling about the state of mind and the sort of cultural consciousness of the left-wing abortion movement in America. They don't think they can even be free without this right. That's incredibly sad. So Greenhouse argues that a baby you're not allowed to kill is involuntary servitude or slavery. That's the hot take from the New York Times article, that a baby you're not allowed to kill, yeah, that's just involuntary servitude into motherhood. That's kind of just like slavery, actually. Um, but of course, it's, it's actually supporting abortion that makes you the most comparable to slavery supporters. Uh, and lastly, this argument from the famous violinist. Now, this one is a little bit more academic or philosophical, um, but it's actually not very complex. It's just, it's just you, you hear philosophers use this a lot. And if you're on a college campus, sometimes you'll run into someone who, who, who fancies themselves a philosopher, and they pull out this argument like, it, like you know, they've got it stashed in their pocket, ready to destroy pro-lifers with. Um, and so the argument goes something like this. No one should be forced to use their body to support or keep someone else alive. No one should be forced to use their body namely the, the mother in this case, to support or keep someone else alive. Who's someone else in this case? The unborn baby. So, so the argument says, yes, the baby is a baby. It, it, it's even a person, sure. They bite the bullet and they grant pro-lifers that premise and they say, but still the woman should be able to kill the baby through abortion because the mother's rights trump the child's rights, namely the mother's right to not be forced to use her body to support someone else. And this argument was first articulated by Judith, Judith Jarvis Thompson, um, in this famous violinist argument. So the, the whole argument is, is, says something like this. Let's say you got knocked out unconscious and you woke up in the hospital attached to this person. Well, it ends up that the Society of Music Lovers uh, uh, went through the hospital database and found that your organs or kidneys were the only ones that matched that of their favorite famous violinist who was deathly ill. So they went into your house, they knocked you out, they took you to the hospital, they plugged you into the famous violinist, you woke up and the hospital said, I'm so sorry, we, we would have prevented this had we known that they were going to do this, but we didn't. Now they've done it. To unplug you from the famous violinist would mean to kill him. But don't worry, you only need to remain plugged into him for nine months, after which both of you can be unplugged safely and continue to live your lives. And so then the question from Judith Jarvis Thompson or the abortion left, however they distort this argument, is to ask pro-lifers this question. Is it morally incumbent upon you to accede to the situation? In other words, are you morally required to remain plugged into the famous violinist? Most pro-lifers would say, no, I'm not morally required. And so then the pro-abort will say, well, I got you, because unplugging yourself from the famous violinist is just like a mother getting an abortion. It's just like her unplugging herself um, from the child. So they equate abortion with mere unplugging. So that's the argument. L let me give you briefly the flaws, and then we'll do a quick inversion of this argument to, to throw the ball back in their court, um, and then we'll wrap up the show today. So what are the flaws with the famous violinist argument that no one should be forced to use their body or organs to support or keep someone else alive? The first flaw is the difference between conscious consent versus unconscious dissent. So women don't wake up and find themselves pregnant, right? Except in the case of rape, they engaged in an act ordered towards procreation. Sex, sex is biologically and naturally oriented towards procreation. There's no getting away from that. So if consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy, okay, which is what they say. They say consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. Then I say consent to eating 10 donuts every day is not consent to obesity. <laughs> but of course it is, because in each case, the first action is intrinsically linked towards the result.
Okay, so the reason why this argument breaks down is that is that the vast majority of abortions are performed on women who consented to sex, therefore they consented to pregnancy, right? Whereas in the famous violinist case, it's it, you got knocked out. You didn't consent to the situation to be plugged into the famous violinist. So if this famous violinist argument even works, it would only work to defend abortions in the case of rape, right? Because the woman didn't consent. So you can ask people, would you join me in fighting to end the 99% of all other abortions that aren't the result of rape? They always say no. So then say, well, then why are you, why are you hiding behind rape victims to make yourself look more compassionate? Why are you appealing to this minor super minority exception to justify your support of the majority? And the, the second flaw with this argument is the difference between killing and letting die. You'll notice that they're equating the case of abortion with the case of unplugging yourself from the famous violinist, right? So they're saying that unplugging yourself from the famous violinist, that's, that is morally the same as the woman getting an abortion. But when a woman gets an abortion, does she just unplug herself? Is that the right comparison? I don't think so. And for this argument to work, your relationship to the famous violinist has to parallel the mother's relationship to her unborn child, remember? So listen, if I unplug myself from the violinist, do I kill him? No, he dies from his underlying pathology, right? A natural course of events happens that would have happened otherwise, right, had I not been plugged into the famous violinist. But if you, quote, unplug yourself from the fetus, then the baby dies because you intentionally kill him or her, <laughs> right? So in the case of abortion, we're talking about killing. In the famous violinist case, we're talking about letting die. Had I not been plugged into the famous violinist, he would have died anyways. Therefore, unplugging myself is not intentionally killing him. The fetus does not die from an underlying pathology, but from an intentional act of dismemberment. So abortion is not the withholding of support, right? It's not letting die. If abortion is the mere withholding of support, then I guess we could say suffocation is just the withdrawing of oxygen. And I ask students this sometimes. I ask some students this at Stanford who use this famous violinist case on me. And, and I, said, I said, oh, so abortion is just like letting die? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, then suffocation is just, the, is just the mere withholding of oxygen. And of course, they say, no, that's not the same at all. Right, of, of course, because you're granting the humanity of um, the famous violinist or yourself, but you're not granting the humanity of the unborn child. The third uh, problem with this argument is the difference between responsibilities to strangers and responsibility to your offspring, <laughs> right? I don't have the same type of moral or legal obligation to you guys listening to the show, assuming you're not my child, <laughs> randomly listening to the show, as I do to my own children, to my own family members, right? There's a reason why the law prosecutes parents who let their children die, right? Who don't care for their basic needs, but they don't prosecute me if I walk by a homeless guy on the side of the road who's starving and I don't feed him. Now, I would actually make an argument that I have a perhaps a communal and spiritual and maybe moral obligation to feed a starving man, right? But, but the law doesn't force me to care for people who are not biologically related to me. So we don't have the same type of responsibilities to strangers as we do to our unborn child. The very thing that makes it plausible 
to detach from the violinist, namely that he's a stranger unnaturally hooked up to you, is the very thing that is not the case in the mother's relationship to her own child. The first basic responsibility that parents have to their own children is to not kill them, right? Yeah, that's pretty basic. And then to care for their basic needs. Uh, Abortion is the killing, is parents killing their own children. Um, The fifth and last problem with this argument is the difference, or rather the, the telos, the purpose of kidneys versus the purpose of the uterus, right? Your kidneys are unnaturally plugged into the famous violinist, remember? Okay, so what are kidneys for? Are they for supporting the life and body of someone else? No, they're for supporting and maintaining your life and body, right? But what is the uterus for? The uterus is for a human being that is not the mother. It's the only organ in a woman's body that is specifically created not for her, for the preservation protection of a different human being. Therefore, the cases break down utterly because of the telos of the organs in question. Okay, so those are the five problems with the famous violinist argument, the argument that says no one should be forced to use their body to support or keep someone else alive. Actually, yes. Yes, mothers should be forced, if you want to use that term, to use their body to support children that they consensually created. You don't, you don't get to argue from your bodily autonomy rights, okay, uh, in order to justify killing a human being that in the vast majority of cases is only alive because you engaged in an act that led to their creation. But this this bodily autonomy argument, okay, this famous violinist argument, sort of undermines itself, actually, and I want to tell you why. Judith Jarvis Thompson, who came up with this argument, concedes the personhood of the unborn, right? She grants that the baby is a baby, it's a human, it's a person with rights, but the mother's rights still trump the child's rights. But if she grants the personhood and humanity of the unborn child, then the unborn child would have the same basic rights as their mother's including the right to bodily autonomy. So abortion then destroys an unborn person's bodily autonomy. And so therefore the bodily autonomy argument implodes when you're, when you're attacking someone else's bodily autonomy. And then lastly, I want to I go over a couple counterexamples because you're going to hear a lot of these um, bodily autonomy arguments right now. You're going to hear a lot of these arguments that say the woman should not be forced to be pregnant. It's her body, her choice. She shouldn't be forced to use her body to keep this thing alive, this baby, this human being that, they, that she created. Um, and, uh, and you're going to hear a lot of arguments from the bodily autonomy perspective. Here are a couple of counterexamples that undermine the bodily autonomy assertions. And I, and I think they're quite interesting, and I don't think that people will be able to answer them because they expose the hypocrisy and inconsistencies and moral bankruptcy of pro-abortion thinking. This um, counterexample comes from a pro-life thinker named Tony George, and it's sort of the famous violinist inverted. Let's call it the reverse violinist, okay? It goes something like this. While you sleep in the hospital, a musician prankster plugs himself into you just for the thrill of doing it. He takes precautions to avoid harming you, but in this case, the precautions fail. As you awake and move to detach yourself, a doctor yells, stop. It turns out your kidneys were damaged by the prankster, and now you need his kidneys for nine months to survive. However, upon waking, the prankster who put you in this dependent situation decides you have no right to use his body without consent, and he detaches. You die as a result. Now, this is terribly unjust. The prankster engaged in an activity he knew could cause you to need the use of his body. His withholding support is outrageous. 
Of course it's outrageous because you're only in this dependent situation because of the actions of someone else that put you in that dependent situation. Similarly, the unborn child is only in a dependent situation and needing their mother's body because the mother and father put that child in that dependent situation. So they're withholding support or killing you is incredibly outrageous. And then the last uh, example that, that sort of uh, contradicts the bodily autonomy arguments is this uh, is the this idea from the drug called thalidomide. Okay, and this is fascinating. I was asking students this question at UC Berkeley and Stanford, and of course they had no answer. If you recall, the drug thalidomide was used largely in the uh, late 70s or rather uh, early 80s, and it was a, a, a anti-nausea medicine that pregnant women would take to help with nausea. It did help with nausea, except it led to all these babies being born without any arms or legs. Okay, so the question is this, should a pregnant mother have a right to take the drug even if it results in a deformed child? Right. Let's say a woman has intractable nausea and vomiting and insists on taking thalidomide to help her symptoms. After having explained the horrific risks of birth defects that have arisen due to this medication, she still insists on taking it based on the fact that the fetus has no right to her body anyways. After being refused thalidomide from her physician, she acquires some and takes it anyways, resulting in her child developing no arms. Do we believe that she did anything wrong? Did she do anything wrong? Most people would say yes. Would we excuse her actions based on her right to bodily autonomy? I don't think so. But remember, the fetus has no right to her body anyways. So if, if Judith Jarvis Thompson's defenders condemn the women, if, if pro-choicers who support bodily autonomy, quote-unquote, condemn the woman, saying that's wrong. The student just told me this at Stanford the other day. They said, that's effed up. And I said, why? The fetus has no right to her body, right? So if the mother harms her unborn child with thalidomide, that's wrong? But if she kills her with elective abortion, that's fine. But of course, who are you to say that, pro-choicer? If the mother's right to bodily autonomy is absolute, it's none of our business what she does with the fetus, right? Imagine this. They're saying that the mother has the right to kill her unborn child, but she doesn't have the right to harm her unborn child. She has the right to kill the baby through abortion, but doesn't have the right to intentionally harm the child through the drug thalidomide. But if the mother has bodily autonomy, her rights to bodily autonomy are absolute. Therefore, you can't impose, quote unquote, your beliefs on her by saying she doesn't have the right to take thalidomide. So you see, th these two examples undermine the bodily autonomy arguments. It shows that we don't actually support mothers doing whatever they want to their unborn children. There are certain duties and responsibilities we have that go beyond mere my body, my choice, sort of truncated myopic talking points. So I know we spent some time on that one, but it, 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 it's so popular. You hear it all the time. And so those are the flaws with the famous violinist or, or bodily autonomy arguments and how you can actually undermine and expose the bankrupt thinking um, at work in these bodily autonomy arguments. Namely, if you cause someone else to need you and your support, you have an obligation and responsibility to not kill them. And if a mother has the absolute right to kill her unborn child, she also has the absolute right to intentionally harm her unborn child, which is far less worse than killing someone, in which case you have no moral grounding on which to stand to oppose women taking thalidomide. But most pro-choicers feel like that's wrong, like it's wrong to intentionally take thalidomide when you know it could cause your baby to be born without arms or legs. But what, what basis do you have to say that? You abandon any moral basis to condemn such behavior when you embrace the pro-choice worldview, ideology, and thinking. <laughs> so... Anyways, these are the non-viable pro-choice arguments that I say we should 
abort. Thanks for tuning into the show today, guys. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. We really appreciate it. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Give me a follow. And if you want to see my speaking schedule or book me for an event soon, uh, go to sethgruber.com. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. We'll be right back.